And this morning, uh, we are looking at uh, how the gospel uh, affects everything about our lives. But one of the th realities that we must come to grips with when it comes to the gospel is to recognize that confirmation of the gospel is one of the ways that we can grow in our confidence uh, in the gospel and in what the gospel does in our lives. There's great value in confirming that something is true. There's great value in confirming that something is true. Imagine if journalists ran stories and never confirmed the accuracy of the facts that they are writing about. Now, we live in a time in our society when uh, all kinds of news about fake stories are running around. And these days, we have a hard time discerning which story is really true. How nice it would be to know that every story that's being uh, written out uh, in, in media news is actually factually true. Confirming that something is true is really helpful. Or imagine what would happen if medical science would come up with theories uh, or medicine that they don't test or confirm as being useful and beneficial. Would you go to a doctor who would prescribe a treatment that has never been tested or confirmed as working? There are great benefits when we undergo a process of testing and confirming if a particular theory or product is actually true. Confirming that something is true also helps us to realize and embrace that truth. Uh, getting a confirmation can bolster confidence, clarity, and even unity. And this is what we see happening with the gospel in the book of Galatians. Uh, the process of confirming the gospel proves to be critical for the health of the churches that Paul sought to minister. So this morning, I invite you to open the Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 10 as we are looking at the confirmation of the only true gospel. The confirmation of the only true gospel. God's Word this morning uh, tells us the following. If you're new to our congregation, we're working through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're in the middle of an argument that the Apostle Paul is bringing to these churches that were in danger of, of swerving off, of being lured away from the true gospel to some distortion of the gospel. And this morning, the Apostle Paul must bring them a confirmation of the true gospel. So listen to God's word this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, 
who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and to bless the hearing uh, this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. Your word is true. And this morning, we want to hear it from you as you have intended it. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would give me clarity and the anointing of your spirit and that you would give all of us the anointing of the spirit to hear your word. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Confirmation of the only true gospel. Why would this be needed? Why would this confirmation be needed? The Apostle Paul writes this letter to churches that have been swerving off, have turned away from the true gospel, and have been lured to follow a corruption, a corrupted version of this gospel, which Paul said it's no gospel at all. More so, they were conspiracy theories running around in Galatia, in this region of, of churches, um, <clears throat> conspiracy theories against the gospel that Paul had preached and against Paul's apostolic ministry. So in the first and second chapter of this book, uh, Paul must defend the source of the true gospel, and he also must be defending the, the reality, the truthfulness of what he had preached and of his ministry. In chapter 1, Paul argued that this gospel that he has been proclaiming and his ministry uh, have actually their source not in people, but in God himself, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, that this gospel that Paul has been preaching is not mere human word, does not come on mere human authority. And then in chapter 2, Paul tells us that he actually checked and confirmed this gospel and his apostolic mission with the church leaders in Jerusalem, and that he did that about 14 years later. Now, why would Paul emphasize that he got this confirmation from the apostles in Jerusalem, this confirmation about the gospel and about his mission? Especially after in chapter 1, he said, I didn't need to do that. I didn't get it from them. I got it from God. 
we get chapter 1. But why is he now spending in chapter 2 some time telling us that after this gospel was received from God through the revelation of Jesus Christ, why would he spend time telling us that he had to go, or he chose to go, or he went to get this confirmation about his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles? Wasn't it enough to say that Paul got this gospel from God? Why put the spotlight on the confirmation he received from the apostles in Jerusalem? If in chapter 1, Paul emphasized the divine source of his gospel in order to help us grow in confidence in this gospel, now in, the, in chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 2, uh, Paul emphasizes uh, the confirmation he got from other apostles in order to foster clarity and unity. In order to foster clarity and unity. So, confirming the gospel is critical for the health of the church. Confirming the gospel is critical for the health of the church. This is, this is the main point of, the, of this passage today. It's not that the confirmation of the gospel shows, confirmation of the gospel from human people shows that somehow the, the people make the gospel true. That's not, that's not what makes the gospel true. Other people don't make the gospel true. The gospel is true simply because it was given by God. It has its source in the divine revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet the human confirmation of the gospel is critical for the, for the church health for the relationships, to put out the, the false theories that were growing around. It's critical for the health of the church. So this morning, you may be wondering, how is the gospel critical or the confirmation of the gospel critical for, for the health of the church? We'll see three ways how confirming the gospel is critical for the health of the church. Three ways from this passage these are not the only ways, but this passage shows three ways why confirming the gospel is critical for the health of the church. Number one, confirming the gospel shows what is worth running after. Confirming the gospel shows us what it's worth running after. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Confirming the gospel shows what is worth running after. Paul initiated this trip not because he had doubts about his gospel. He didn't get into a sort of personal crisis. I wonder if the gospel I have been preaching all these years is a true gospel. That's not what led Paul to go up to Jerusalem to get this confirmation. Uh, we are told in the passage that Paul went to get this confirmation at God's guidance. Did you see in verse 2? I went up because of a revelation. Now, we don't know exactly what that revelation uh, is talking about. 
it's possible in the book of Acts uh, that the prophecy of Agabus uh, may have been one, that revelation. It's unclear. But the bottom line is, Paul is telling us that he went to Jerusalem to have this matter of the gospel settled with the other Jerusalem apostles on the occasion of God's guidance. This means that this confirmation was guided by God. The Lord guided the need for this confirmation. Such a confirmation between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles would help confirm what was worth running after. Especially knowing that these conspiracy theories by the Judaizers uh, began mushrooming, began growing, and, and questioning the validity of Paul's gospel. After all, somebody could see how and why someone who could question Paul's validity when he had little to no acquaintance or communication with the Jerusalem apostles. Yet the God who revealed his gospel to Paul had revealed the same gospel to the Jerusalem apostles earlier, and now it was time for them to get together to confirm that what they have heard from the Lord was matching. And this conversation, this confirmation of the gospel uh, was necessary for others, for the whole church to know about. Paul tells us that the benefit he was seeking in this confirmation, he says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now I ask you, who needed this confirmation? Did Paul become doubtful that what he had preached was somehow deficient? It's unlikely that the Paul who had the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, who had that personal experience of seeing the exalted Lord and hearing from him directly, now gets to this midlife crisis of thinking he needed an extra dose of the confirmation. Instead, this confirmation was needed for the sake of other believers who would become lured into questioning Paul's gospel. This confirmation was needed to stop the false teachers who were seeking to sway believers to another kind of gospel, to sway them away from the gospel Paul was teaching. And if they were successful in their work, then Paul's efforts would have been in vain. So by ensuring against running in vain, Paul implies that not all religious experience, not all spiritual experience, is valid and true. Not all have lasting significance. Some religious experiences can be in vain. Some are in vain. The Judaizers in Galatia were spreading the rumor that Paul's gospel was deficient, was incomplete, that they needed to add the Mosaic law in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God. And if that was true, Paul says, well, then the way I've been preaching the gospel is in vain. Or, or if, if they're successful at turning people away from this true gospel, then those who, who, li to, who listen to what I've done and are now turning away to something else, then their experience has been in vain. There is a reality Paul acknowledges 
some spiritual experiences, some religious experiences can be in vain. And the question is, how do you know the truth? How do you know the truth between what is worth pursuing and what is in vain? The difference is whether or not our spiritual pursuits are centered on the gospel. On the true gospel. On the only true gospel. Is a gospel accurate and clear? And is our lives sent, are our lives centered on this gospel exclusively? Do we continue to remain centered on the gospel with our lives personally and with our lives corporately as a church? The, the churches in the region of Galatia have been in danger of, of swerving, swerving off. And Paul says, if, if your way of going about it is true, then my work in the past has been in vain. The implication is, but if my gospel that I've been preaching is true, then your corruption of the gospel is in vain. Both cannot be true. Not all truth is truth. Not all true claims are necessarily the truth. Do you know how to differentiate between what is worth pursuing and what is not? Confirming the gospel shows what is worth pursuing. And the Apostle Paul goes in this test, in this process of confirming the gospel to ensure that he has not been running in vain. And consider here Paul's humility in being open to examine his ministry and his gospel before others to ensure that he has not been running in vain. I wonder how many people today, if they had been in Paul's situation, would have responded in their pride and would have never considered taking a pause and checking to see if they have been running their lives in vain. Consider how many uh, perhaps would say, I don't need to have this confirmation. I've seen the Lord. Paul could have said, Oh, if they want the confirmation, let them come to me and get it confirmed by me. I am the one who can confirm it to others. But Paul was anything but prideful. He was willing to humble himself to, to seek this gospel confirmation in order to protect against running in vain. Both for himself, but primarily for others who are listening to his gospel. Friends, let me ask you, what keeps you away from pausing to check and see if you have not been running in vain? Is this attitude, this need for confirming the gospel, something that is beyond you? Oh, I, I don't need to do this. I don't need to double check. I don't need to really make sure that what I'm running after is the truth. Is there a, a prideful attitude that just keeps you aloof from taking a pause and saying, let me make sure that I am not running in vain. Let me make sure that what I'm running after with my life, with my religious experience and spiritual life, that what I'm actually running after is worth pursuing. And what makes a difference is whether or not you're still holding on to the clarity and the centrality of the gospel of justification by faith alone. Confirming the gospel shows what is worth running after, both for ourselves and for others.
Uh, point number two about what is the benefit of confirming the gospel, a second reason why it's critical to confirm the gospel for the health of the church is confirming the gospel exposes falsehood and preserves the true gospel. Confirming the gospel exposes falsehood and preserves the true gospel. In verse 3 and following, uh, the Apostle Paul brings a report that uh, Titus, who was on the steam going to Jerusalem, that Titus, Titus was not forced to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Now, why would that be a big deal? Uh, to us who are not struggling with the, the threat of circumcision infiltrating uh, the church as a necessary experience in order to be saved, uh, men say praise God for that, um, you might say, well, why is a big deal for, for Paul to bring this report and bring up Titus right away? Well, because the Judaizers looked at circumcision as the, the big symbol of whether or not you're going to use the law of Moses as necessary to your right relationship with God. And Paul says, listen, Titus, who was a Greek, and had been joining us on that team, on that, on that journey to Jerusalem to get this confirmation, Titus had not been forced to get circumcised. Uh, in Galatians, later in chapter 6, in Galatians 12, Paul exposes that the false teachers who were troubling the churches of Galatia listened to what they were doing in these churches. You don't have to turn there, but Galatians 6.12 Paul says to these churches, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. The false teachers in Galatia were, were putting pressure on the believers. You must be circumcised if you're going to be saved. So Paul brings up Titus here and says, hey, when we went up to Jerusalem, Titus was not forced to get circumcised. Yet, that's not the whole story of the journey to Jerusalem. While that was a good first evidence, Paul says, yeah, but don't get excited a little too quickly here. There's some trouble in our trip to, Galatia, to, to Jerusalem, and let me tell you about it. And that shows up in verse 4 and 5. The church in Jerusalem apparently had been infiltrated by people who did put pressure on Paul and his team to circumcise Titus. In verse 4 and 5 we read, Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is a trouble. And notice how Paul calls these people. Did you notice how he calls them? False brothers. Let that sink in. Why did Paul call them this way? Because they were not promoting the true gospel. They were actually laboring to swerve people off, away from the true gospel of being saved by Christ alone through faith alone in promoting the obedience to the law of Moses as a necessary means of salvation on top of believing in Jesus, Paul says these 
so-called brothers, and I'm not calling them brothers, I'm actually calling them false brothers, they were actually calling us back to slavery. Now just let that thought kick in, sink in. If our right standing before God can be determined by our obedience to the law of Moses and by our performance of the law of Moses, Paul says we would be enslaved again. Going back to slavery. We as a nation have experienced in the history of our nation what it means to have slaves. Nobody these days would ever think and dare want to go back to that. And yet there's a spiritual dimension in which the, the audacity, the, the, the tragic uh, implications of going back to the law of Moses as a necessary means for salvation would be like going back to slavery, spiritually speaking. And you may wonder, slavery from what? Slavery to what? But slavery to sin and death. Because obeying the law of Moses and trying to obey the law of God in our own effort could never be done by us consistently or sufficiently to free us from slavery to sin and death. And this is what the true gospel is all about. The true gospel of justification by faith alone, declares that we are made right with God, not based on our righteous acts, not based on our obedience, not based on how well we are able to obey everything that God has required of us. Because if that was what it took, we could never be freed from our enslavement to sin and death. But the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone declares that the one who fully obeyed, perfectly obeyed the law of God was Jesus Christ. He obeyed it fully throughout his life. And he obeyed it fully ultimately by even obeying his Father's will in going to the cross so that those like us who could never obey the law of God fully would be able to be made right with God based on our believing and trusting and relying on what Christ has done as a substitute for sinners like you and I. Any other gospel leaves us enslaved. And this God, the Father of Jesus Christ, rose Jesus from the dead on the third day, proving that his perfect obedience to the Father and his perfect sacrifice fully paid for the guilt and the punishment that our sins deserved so that all those who are now putting their faith in trusting Jesus would be granted the forgiveness of sins, the freedom that comes from placing our faith fully in Jesus Christ. It is freedom indeed. And the book of Galatians later in the book will bring this freedom back and expose it for us and paint its beautiful pictures. But here the Apostle Paul simply calls these people False brothers, because what they were promoting would call people back to slavery. Oh, dear friends, false brothers will always preach a false gospel. And a false gospel always leaves you as a false brother. 
it never makes you a true brother and sister in Christ together with others. Paul has no other words to call these influential false teachers but false brothers. That's why we seek to make clear that members of the church are to be clear on the gospel, are to be able to confirm it, are able to affirm it. Otherwise, the preservation of the gospel is at stake. And Paul says, we did not submit. We did not yield to these false brothers even for a moment. Did you see that? We did not submit or yield to these brothers or false brothers even for a moment. This means that rejecting those who promote a false gospel may create a little bit of turbulence. Rejecting those who promote a false gospel may create some hard conversations. Unity and peace in a church are never to be pursued at the expense of the truth of the gospel. Paul never promoted the truth that all truth is equal. That all truth claims are really truth. So because the false brothers uh, were promoting this false gospel, uh, Paul is saying, we did not yield in submission. And he actually puts a positive purpose for that. He says, we did not yield in submission, even for the moment, or moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There are times and situations when God's people must not yield in submission to others. Now, in the local church, we're commanded to submit to one another. Out of a, out of a reverence for Christ, there's one situation openly and clearly in which we are not called to submit to one another. And that is if the gospel that one of us would be proclaiming would prove to be a false gospel. When the gospel is no longer clear among us in its clarity and accuracy, we not only should not submit, but we have a duty not to submit. And the purpose for that is so that we may actually preserve the truth of the gospel for the next generations. This means that our unity as a church is only possible if we first of all unite around the gospel. If the gospel is clearly maintained at the center of what we do as a church. If that gospel is threatened or corrupted, we can't submit to each other and we shouldn't. Now the surprise of this text, as I was working this week through it, and it, it dawned on me, the surprise of this text for me was, where did these false brothers infiltrate? Which church did they infiltrate? It wasn't First Baptist, no name, nobody knows about. This was the first church in Jerusalem. This was a church pastored and shepherded by the apostles. This was a church where, if I can say, the best pastors were shepherding. It was this church that had been infiltrated by these kind of false brothers. And that gave me chills. Because it tells me, no matter how faithful a pastor is or how good a pastor is. 
false brothers can infiltrate, even in the churches shepherded by a plurality of apostles who have actually experienced the Lord himself. No grade of quality of shepherding can foolproof protect the life of a local church from the infiltration of false brothers. And that should give us chills. Yes, we try to do our diligence in making sure that every member who becomes a member of our church knows the gospel, is clear on the gospel. There's evidence that the gospel has affected them, that they have truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, realize that we cannot put our confidence in the, in the faithfulness of the pastors, in the goodness of the church, to somehow confirm that we are true brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yes, we should do our diligence as much as we can, but at the end of the day, we must all hold on to the importance of confirming the gospel regularly in order to expose falsehood and in order to preserve the gospel for the next generation. When we're clear about the gospel, when we're clear in confirming it, one of the benefits is that it exposes falsehood and it preserves the true gospel for the next generation. And we should not somehow think that the quality of the church or the quality of the pastors is a safeguard to help you hide against the need to continue to confirm the gospel over and over and regularly with each other. What is at stake is the preservation of the gospel. And when we don't have that, what we become is a pseudo-Christian family, a false Christian family with false brothers and sisters. And the Apostle Paul says, I want none of that because false brothers and sisters will continue to promote a false gospel. A third reason, a third benefit for confirming the gospel. We have seen the, fir the first two. The f confirming the gospel shows what it's worth running after. Confirming the gospel exposes falsehood and preserves the gospel. The third and final benefit, confirming the gospel brings clarity and unity. Confirming the gospel brings clarity and unity. And we see this in verses 6 through 10. Paul gives a big conclusion that after spending time with the church in Jerusalem and particularly in private conversations with the apostles, that the pillar apostles in Jerusalem did affirm Paul's gospel and his ministry to the Gentiles as being true, valid. In telling of this confirmation, Paul brings out several clarifying points about his gospel and about the ministry. And here are the clarifying points. Uh, first of all, in verse 6, Paul states that the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to Paul's gospel or ministry. Did you hear that? Those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. What this means is they have found no deficiency. They have found nothing lacking to Paul's gospel. They didn't need to add something different to, to finalize it. No extra barriers, no extra requirements. They confirmed that Paul's gospel was a complete gospel. Instead, they also perceived that Paul was entrusted with the gospel. 
Another clarifying point is that they came to realize that the God who worked in Peter's apostleship worked in Paul's apostleship. Look at verse 8. For he who worked through Paul, for his apostol- uh, in, through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me in mine to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul clarifies that through this confirmation, the apostles in Jerusalem confirmed that it was God who was working through the apostles. Not just through the twelve in Jerusalem, but through Paul as well. The work of these apostles were not mere human labor. It was not just human religious propaganda. Through their apostleship, God was working His plans. Through their apostleship, God was making known the truth of the gospel. And a question for us to consider is whether we realize that God is working behind and through human labor, the human work, first of all, of his apostles back 2,000 years ago. But that work continues to be spread through us, through his people. When we give ourselves to the work of the kingdom, do we believe and rely on God who works through his people? When the Lord calls us to do something for his name, He works through us. You and I are not apostles like Paul and Peter. But we can take great comfort in remembering that ministry is not merely a human effort, a human labor. Our labors for the Lord are vehicles through which God himself is working. What an encouragement that can be. What a motivator that can be. Especially if we struggle with seeing any value in opening our lives to work for others and unto others as unto the Lord. Because they have seen God's grace in Paul's ministry, because they have seen God's work through Paul's labors, they are now able to pronounce their affirmation and confirmation of Paul's gospel ministry. And they say in verse 9 and 10, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The gospel and the ministry of the gospel is a grace we receive, not a burden. The ministry of the gospel is a grace we receive, not a burden. Some of us look at it as a burden, not as a grace entrusted to us. But notice that when this confirmation of the gospel between Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem takes place, notice what is the result of that. Paul uses the phrase, the right hand of fellowship. What does that mean? It's it's an idiom that suggests unity, an affirmation, of working together in the same gospel, in the same work. It may look differently to different regions, but it is the same gospel calling people to the same Jesus in the same way. Even though the Jerusalem apostles were sent to a different audience than Paul, their work was the same. And now the giving of the right of fellowship was a a visible way. We might say we shook hands, that we're in this together. Well, friends, this is why the confirmation of the gospel leads not only to clarity, 
against falsehood, but it leads to unity. When the gospel is affirmed and confirmed, it establishes a new expression of fellowship. And this fellowship was going to be manifested in various ways. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote letters from one place to another, he would oftentimes send greetings. He would oftentimes tell people that we're praying for you. It is one way we cultivate and demonstrate the fellowship we have with other people even beyond the walls of one gathering. That's why earlier in the service we prayed and we regularly pray for other churches. Some of these churches you may know, others you may not. But we pray because it's one way we maintain fellowship with others. Another way to demonstrate that fellowship of working together is through financial support. In this particular case, the apostles in Jerusalem said only, what they say? They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, the, the, the word poor here refers not to the poor of society at large. The poor that is referring to here, and Paul gets it very clearly, is the poor of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had become impoverished. They were going through financial difficulties, and there were many poor in the church of Jerusalem. And if we read the letters of Paul and the book of Acts, we see that over and over again, Paul mentions reference to special fundraising campaigns that he did in various churches for the poor of the churches in Judea, in Jerusalem in particular. Paul's major teaching about Christian generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, a fantastic chapter that helps us think through how to, to think biblically about our financial resources. That expose of biblical teaching on Christian generosity, Paul wrote because he was leading a campaign to raise funds for the poor among the churches in Jerusalem among the church in Jerusalem. Such support from Gentile churches who were more well-off towards the poor believers in the church in Jerusalem was one of the tangible ways in which these churches were to demonstrate fellowship that they have together in Christ. This means that one of the ways that we as a church can enjoy fellowship with one another and with other churches beyond the walls of our congregation is when we have financial partnerships with gospel-trusted partners. Whether they are in the Middle East, whether they are in Romania, whether they are here in the United States, whether they are here in Austin, we want to recognize that one of the ways we express our fellowship in the gospel is by sharing resources together. Friends, consider that the gospel unites us not merely to God and Christ vertically in an isolated manner, but the gospel unites us horizontally, socially with one another in such a way that we are being called brothers and sisters in Christ when we hold on to the only true gospel. Otherwise, we are a pseudo-false Christian community. And when we are the true Christian community, we show that solidarity not just within each other here, but we show that with other brothers and sisters in other churches by praying for them and by developing financial partnerships where we support each other in the work that the Lord has called us to do. Oh, friends, consider the beauty of the gospel. Consider the beauty of confirming 
the gospel. Are there benefits to confirming the gospel? Absolutely. The gospel, the confirmation of the gospel is critical for the health of the church. It's critical because we see what it's worth running after. It gives us a chance to check in with one another and, and get back to the basics to make sure that we are running after what is truly worth running after. Otherwise, it's in vain. It, it's beneficial because it helps us expose falsehood and it helps us preserve the gospel for the next generations. And it's critical and it's helpful because it brings clarity and unity in the fellowship that the gospel creates among us. Friends, may the Lord help us foster the worthiness, the clarity, and the unity that the gospel brings us into. May the Lord help us and take the challenge of confirming the gospel as a serious challenge, as a serious responsibility that the Lord leads us to have for the greatness of his name among us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the way you have led your servants, your apostles, to preach the gospel boldly and with confidence, knowing that this gospel has been revealed through Jesus Christ. But we praise you that you have also led them to, to go out of their way to confirm this gospel together so that we may be the recipients of the tangible benefits of confirming this gospel for us, for our ministry. Father, help us to be a congregation of people who take joy in confirming this gospel and who grow in confidence in this gospel that it is, it is the truth that unites us to you and unites us to one another. We pray that we would be gloriously uh, encouraged and enthusiastic about praising you in this gospel that we have received so that our unity and love for one another may continue to be a beacon of your truthfulness. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen.